Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you here in person as well as those joining us on our live stream. Uh, as Corey mentioned, um, this is a fifth Sunday, four times a year. Our elementary kids stay in uh, with us and trying to, you know, we're continuing this series that we've started this summer, uh, Sacred Songs, looking at a different psalm each week, thinking about kids being in here today. Um, let me ask, first of all, all the children, how many of you like to ride a bike? Raise your hand if you like to ride a bike. All right. And how many adults and teens also like to ride a bike? Okay. Yeah. Kids of all ages like bikes, right? So I, it was kind of a last minute idea. Uh, on Friday, we sent an email out and said, Hey, if you got a picture of you on your bike, send it in. And we got a few of those. Uh, got a couple of Hardenbrooks there. Uh, Luke and Sam. And, uh, then there's another Hardenbrook, uh, Ezra. And yet another Hardenbrook, Joshua. Now, some of the pictures that were sent in were taken a while ago, so it's a younger version, right? So, uh, like the, 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 the Keenan boys there, uh, uh, Cohen and, and Luke, uh, a little bit younger in that picture. Or how about a younger version of Rick Jones? Uh, uh, <laughs> Not much younger, is that what you said? <laughs> uh, some of the bike pictures came in looked like fast. I mean, they were just fast. And some of them looked really fast, like uh, Ryan Cruz's bike. That's his bike. <laughs> but then one was sent in that was just lightning fast a few years ago at a staff retreat. Here was just a lightning fast <laughs> bike picture that was taken. Well, thank you for sending those in at the last minute. There, there is a purpose. This does relate to the message from Psalm 81. And you'll see it as we go along because there's a key point um, that we're, we're going to build off a bike. Now, the title of the sermon is A Song of Satisfaction. We're, all of them are a song of this, a song of that, a song of the other. But if we weren't in that series doing those things, I might have called this Biking with God. So just hang in there and, and we'll get to that. But first, let's read through the psalm. Psalm 81. For the director of music, according to Giddeth. Now, that's... Giddeth was a musical instrument, like a stringed instrument. So this was designed to be sung and played on, on a stringed instrument. And the author was a man named Asaph. Sing for joy to God our strength. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. Begin the music, strike the timbrel. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the moon is full on the day of our festival, this is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. When God went out against Egypt, he established it 
as a statute for Joseph. I heard an unknown voice say, I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel, you shall have no foreign god among you. You shall not worship any god other than me. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat, with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. So let's set the background here of this psalm. In Psalm 81, God's covenant community, which in the Old Testament, that was Israel. Israel was the nation that had entered into a covenant with God. This covenant community was called together to celebrate the festivals. That's a lot of what they did in, in their life. They, they would come and celebrate a festival. It was a special day of gathering so they could remember what God had done for them and they could sing to God and they could praise God. And it was, it was just a huge celebration. And in the middle of that celebration, God spoke to them and the way that he spoke to them back then, thousands of years ago, is similar to the way that he speaks to us today. And that's what we're going to look at. So, the feast here, there were, there were seven Jewish feasts. If you were a Jewish person, in the springtime, there would be four feasts that you would go through. And in the fall, there would be three feasts. First of all was Passover, of course. Uh, when these, God's people would gather together, it was to remember specifically what God did when the nation of Israel were in bondage, when they were slaves. They were in Egypt. Um, they were under a terrible, terrible situation and God rescued them out of that. So if you remember the story in Exodus or you've seen the movie 10 commandments, you know that part of what happened was the night before they were going to be rescued, God's angel came through and all of them put blood on the doorpost outside their house to protect them. And therefore the angel passed over them and the Jewish people continue to remember that and to celebrate that on Passover. Well, the very next day after Passover, there was a feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So for a week, the Jewish person would not eat bread that had yeast in it because yeast takes time to rise. And this was remembering when they went out to Egypt, they had to go quickly. On the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread came this feast called First Fruits. And that was the beginning of the harvest. That was when the grain was starting to come in. The Feast of Weeks, which was also known as the Feast of Pentecost, 
happened 50 days later. So first fruit started the, the harvest. 50 days later, there was this feast called Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks, and it celebrated the end of the harvest. And of course, as Christians, we're familiar. We look back into the book of Acts, the day of Pentecost, when God uh, sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of us for the first time. All of those were the springtime feasts. Now in green were the three feasts that were in the fall. There was the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, trumpets were blasted <laughs> to signal the end of the agricultural year and uh, to signal to Israel that they're about to enter into a very special sacred season. And ten days later was the Day of Atonement. And this was the day that once a year the high priest would go into the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people one time a year. That was the Day of Atonement. And then finally, five days after the Day of Atonement was the Feast of Tabernacles, or also called the Feast of Booths. And this, what, what would happen here, they, the Jewish people would go and for seven days they would live in these portable huts that had palm branches on the top of them. They were booths and they would live in them and they would offer sacrifices to God to remember who he was. And it re- remembered all those years that God led them through Israel. Now tabernacles, it's interesting, I think that's the feast That's in view in Psalm 81. And we'll see as we walk through it, we'll see some indications why this was the particular feast. So remember, think they're gathering together for seven days. They're remembering how God has led them all this way. And let's walk through the psalm. Sing for joy to God. Shout aloud to the God of Jacob. This is not (laughs) half-hearted. This is not, well, just come in and if you feel like it, sing a little bit. This is sing for joy. This is shout aloud. This is supposed to be, this is supposed to be a feast, right? This is a festival. This is something special. Now, some people have wondered or even attacked the idea. Some skeptics have attacked the idea. Why does God need our praise? Why does God want our praise? I think the writer C.S. Lewis shed some interesting light on that question. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses the enjoyment, but it completes the enjoyment. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be, not to be able to tell anybody how good he is. To come suddenly upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people you, the people with you don't care for it. To hear a good joke and to have no one to share it with. So he says, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. And that's what God's people are being called to here. Sing for joy. Shout aloud. Verse 2, begin the music. Strike the timbrel. Play the melodious harp and lyre. Sound the ram's horn at the new moon. And when the moon is full on the day of our festival, this is a decree for Israel, an ordinance of the God of Jacob. 
Now, they would sound this ram's horn at certain feasts, like the new moon festival. And he mentions it here, when, when the moon is full, on the day of that festival. The full moon happened to coincide in the seventh month with the Feast of Tabernacles. So that's why I think this psalm is about uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. I think it's used during that feast. Remember the purpose of those feasts. This was God's people opportunity to go back and remember what God had done for them. How he had brought them out of Egypt. How he had saved them. How he had given them a new land. It was all about remembering God. It was all about praising God. And, you know, all through the Old Testament, they kept going back over and over and over again. They kept going back to what we call the Exodus. They were in Egypt. They were bondage. They were enslaved. They got rescued. That Exodus out of Egypt was the way God showed up for them. It just keeps happening over and over again. And we now, as Christians, we keep looking back too. We don't look back to the Exodus event. We look back to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross because that was the event in which he saved us. That was the event in which he rescued us. And we remember that on our own. We remember it as a church like we'll do next week. We regularly celebrate communion. We'll take bread and cups and we'll remember what he did for us. Specifically in verse 5, it's named what they're to remember. When God went out against Egypt, he established it as a statute for Joseph. So here it is. This is what happened. God attacked Egypt, freeing his people to go to a new land. And they were celebrating with joy. They, it was, it was festive. It was, it was joyous. It's like in a sports arena when your team scores a goal or makes a touchdown or hits a home run. You've been in those environments and you've seen people just celebrate. This is the atmosphere. But in the middle of that celebration, the psalm takes an interesting twist and turn. And now... God himself speaks directly to the people. Most of the Psalms are people talking to God or people talking about God. But in this one, God says a few words. In fact, there are three things, and these are on your outline sheet. There are three things that God said to his people back then, and he still says them to us today. And the first one is this. I am the God who rescued you. Look at verse 6 as we keep walking through the passage. I removed the burden from their shoulders. Their hands were set free from the basket. You remember in the Old Testament, many of you remember a man named Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He went into Egypt. They were going to kill him. They decided to sell him. He ended up in a, a Potiphar's house. He was a servant and he, he got elevated and, and the king, the Pharaoh had dreams and nobody could interpret them and, and God allowed Joseph to do it. And now Joseph became the second in command in Egypt, only behind the Pharaoh. He was over everything and, and 
His people were protected at that time, but Joseph died. He passed off the scene. That generation was gone, and a new pharaoh rose up in Egypt that didn't even know about Joseph or care about Joseph. And what happened? Israel, the Israelites, had just multiplied over and over, and they were so big. And the pharaoh was nervous about them, so... He started putting them in bondage. We're going to make them slaves. We're going to make them build cities for Pharaoh. And that's the reference to the basket. They would put their clay um, in, quote, baskets. They would carry these things that way. And they cried out to God. I mean, it was miserable existence in the hot, long working. I mean, there was no union for them to appeal to. In your distress, you called and I rescued you. I answered you out of a thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And God did speak to Moses out of a cloud in Exodus 19. There was no way, no way they could get out of that. You know, that is a perfect picture of salvation for us. Some people think, oh, well, if I'm good enough, If I go to church enough or do enough good deeds, help the poor, go through religious rituals, somehow I... But but ultimately, there's no way we can get to God. We're like Israel in bondage. We, We need him to rescue us. And that's what God says. I am the God who rescues you. The second thing he says is this. Serve me and I will richly meet all your needs. If you serve me... I will richly meet all your needs. Look at verse 8. Hear me, my people, and I will warn you. If you would only listen to me, Israel. Now, as you look at verse 8, what two words do you see in verse 8 that are similar to each other? And they're very, very important words. Hear and listen, right? Hear and listen. God is going to tell them. He wants them to listen very carefully to something. I'm about to tell you something really, really important. And what I'm about to tell you is, I want you to serve me. I don't want you to serve the false gods. I want you to serve me. And if you do that, I'm going to meet your needs incredibly. Hear me. Listen to me. I asked you to send the bikes in because I remembered this experience. When we lived in Chicago, we lived in Chicago nine years before moving here to start Harvest. And that's not an actual picture of me and my son. But one day in our neighborhood, uh, in a northwest suburb of Chicago, Buffalo Grove, My oldest son, who was probably about eight, he was seven or eight at the time, he and I went for a bike ride. Now, the neighborhood we lived in was a pretty quiet neighborhood. There wasn't a lot of traffic. So you didn't, you weren't scared of like riding on on the road itself or whatever. So we happened to be riding in our neighborhood and we were riding in single file. I I was on my bike and he was directly behind me. And I don't know whether we should have been or not. We were actually on the left-hand side of the road so that if any traffic was going to come, it was going to be coming at us rather than behind us. So we're riding along, 
And I look up and I see a car start to come towards us. So naturally, I, as I'm riding, I turn to him and I said, Jonathan, there's a car coming. I need you to stay directly behind me. Don't veer off. Just stay right behind me. And I didn't hear him respond. I could, I could see that he was back there. I said, do you hear me? And when I asked him, do you hear me? I wasn't just asking him if the sound waves were going into his ears. I was asking him if he understood the importance of what I was saying and he was going to listen to it and obey it. Why? Because I knew that if he decided to go off to the right, the car might come by and and might hit him. I knew we didn't have time to get off the road or do anything like that. I just, it was in an instant moment. Hey, Jonathan, stay behind me. Do you hear me? And he did, fortunately, and he stayed behind me and we were fine. I think about that when I think about what God says in this verse. Hear me. If my people would just hear me. If they would just listen to me. You God's people needed to know that he had their best interest at heart. I had my son's best interest at heart. I wasn't trying to limit his options. I was I was protecting him. I knew what was best for him. And that's the way God is with us. Let me ask you, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe God really has your best interest at heart? This is what he's calling. Hear me. What is he, what is he calling to do? Serve me and I'll, I'll meet all your needs. He says, verse 9, you shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not worship any God other than me. And in that place where Israel had gone... All these nations around them, they had God after God after God. They had these false gods, these idols that were kind of in charge, so to speak, of everything. The gods of fertility and the god of the sun and the god of vegetation and the god of storms. Egypt itself, just the nation of Egypt had 40 false gods. And in the... In the story in the Old Testament, when Moses is calling down the plagues or God is doing the plagues on Egypt, 10 different plagues, those were probably 10 different gods, false gods of of Egypt that were being addressed. So there were all these false gods that they could follow. And if you're like me, sometimes you, you think, wait a minute, they have just seen God do this amazing miracle. He's rescued them through the Red Sea. He's feeding them in the wilderness. Why would they go serve some other false god? And then I remember that we have gods around us too. Uh, What is a god? What is an idol? Tim Keller, in this book, Money, Sex, and Power, defines an idol this way. He says, anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's the definition of an idol. 
He says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. And I think, I think there are a lot of false gods. These aren't all of them. These are just some of them. In fact, in a couple of weeks when we get to another psalm that talks about idols, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the idols that we have. But what about money or power? Remember, it's anything that takes God's place. It's anything that you and I feel like we need or depend on to give us what only God can give. Sex. Maybe it's success or comfort. Maybe it's acceptance or even human love, which is a good thing. Not all of these things are bad. We're not saying these are bad things, but these are some of the things that can become idols in our life. They can become false gods. We can worship them. And notice in verse 10 what God's promised to those that will follow him, to those that will serve him. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. That's just a picture of satisfaction. God is like, follow me, open your mouth and I'm going to fill it. That's Complete fulfillment, that's complete contentment. Because all these other false idols, no matter how shiny they might be, no matter how appealing they might be to our flesh, they're going to leave us still hungry. They're going to leave us still thirsty, spiritually and emotionally. And God says, follow me, I will give you complete satisfaction. God had met their needs in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29, the Lord says, During the 40 years I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. And during that time, he promised that he would bless those that responded to him in faith and obedience. Deuteronomy 30 See, I set before you today life and prosperity. That's one hand. Death and destruction on the other. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. That's one side. But the other side is if your heart turns away and you're not obedient and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So are we hearing what God is saying this morning? He, he, he says to his people, I'm the God who rescued you, rescued you, serve me only and I'll richly meet your needs. And then finally he says, and this is kind of sad, I will not stop you from turning away from me and suffering the consequences. This is in verses 11 to 16. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. 
So rather than responding to God with gratitude, oh God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for giving us a new land. Rather than doing that, they decided to rebel against him. They didn't listen. They didn't submit. And it, and it wasn't just that one generation, unfortunately. The entire history of God's people in the Old Testament is time and again, they listen to God and then they get away from God. They listen to God, they get away from God. They, they obey sometimes and then they fall, fall to their own devices. Uh, Isaiah, for instance, chapter one, the prophet said, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, nor do my people understand. Back to Psalm 81, verse 13. If my people would only listen to me, if Israel would only follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. I wish I could hear the tone of voice that was used here. I... I believe it was probably tinged with sadness. I believe God was just like, I've, I've done so much for them. I've offered so much to them. I want them to serve me. If, the, if they would just only listen. Verse 15, those who hate the Lord would cringe before him and their punishment would last forever. But you would be fed with the finest of wheat with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. So the language in this psalm for the way that God's, uh, God cares and shepherds for us is it's based on food, right? Uh, in verse 10, open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. And now in verse 16, I would give you the finest wheat. I would give you honey. I don't want you to miss out. I want you to be satisfied. I want you to be loyal and responsive and obedient to me. But when they're not, they missed out. And when we're not, we also miss out. God made these promises. Isaiah chapter 1. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So what's God's word for us this morning? How, how can we summarize everything that Psalm 81 is trying to teach us? And I, I've got it to six words. God demands loyalty and promises satisfaction. God demands loyalty and promises satisfaction. How does this point to Jesus? This is written a long time before Jesus ever walked on the face of the earth. But all of the Old Testament looks ahead. So I think there are a couple of ways. I think there are a couple of important ways that this points forward to Jesus. Here we're seeing disobedient people. Here we're seeing God's People who Israel, he also called Israel my son. We see a disobedient son who won't follow God, who will follow their own devices and rebel against God. But in contrast to that, 
Praise God that Jesus was fully obedient to God the Father. He was an obedient son. They were disobedient. We are disobedient. But Jesus is fully obedient. He said, I came to do your will. Philippians 2 talks about his humbling. He was always equal with God. He was always existing in eternity with God. But he humbled himself and he came down to earth. And he became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. Praise God that Jesus is fully obedient. The second way that this points forward to Jesus is as we think about the word and the concept satisfaction. Psalm 81 promises ultimate satisfaction for those that follow God. Now, I want to read John chapter 7, a couple of verses out of John 7. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, by the way, that was the festival of tabernacles in John chapter 7. I think Psalm 81 was about the festival of tabernacles in the Old Testament. And now, hundreds of years later, Jesus stands up on the last day of this festival and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. One chapter earlier, John chapter 6, as Jesus was engaging with people about bread, he was talking about a different kind of bread. And they said, sir, give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And I want to say that to you today. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not tasted of him and said, I want you as my Lord and Savior, I need you as my Lord and Savior, I give my life to you in faith as my Lord and Savior, come to him. He's the bread of life. He will satisfy you. And Christian... Those who have come to Jesus, let's, let's not be forgetful about all he's done for us. And let's not be distracted by all the other false gods that are out there. Let's eat and drink of him. Because God demands loyalty. And he promises satisfaction. There's an article called Satisfaction in the Savior by a lady named Cantiese Burrell. And she's just telling a story about a friend of hers and the friend's family, what they did at dinner time. At dinner time, the friend and all the siblings would finish their plates and then they would head over to the dad's side of the table and they would each eat some off of his plate. Parents, can you relate to that? <laughs> they did it every evening. Kids would eat their plates and go over and head to dad's plate and eat some. And then she writes this. These children had all eaten. But none of them were satisfied until they could eat something from their father's plate. In the same manner, 
God is our heavenly father. And no matter what we have eaten or what we have been drinking of this world, satisfaction only comes when we eat from his plate. In Christ Jesus, God has prepared a spiritual plate for all to take part and eat from. Jesus is the source and sustainer of life. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.